and keep your Bibles open and turn with me to the psalm, Psalm 36. I told you last week we were beginning to spend some time looking at the psalms this year. And most Bibles, you can find the psalms just by opening up to the middle. Not all Bibles, but many Bibles, you can find the psalms in that way. The Hebrew word for psalms is tehillim, and it means hymns of praise. And these psalms that we have, all 150 of them, were written as poems. They were meant to be sung. They were meant to be prayed. They were meant to be read in the context both of personal as well as corporate worship. And so over several, several, several hundred years, by no telling how many different writers, the Psalms were written and they were used in the temple worship. So just as this morning, we've already sung hymns and we've read scripture and on occasion we have responsive readings and somebody had to write all of those things. So the people of Israel used these Psalms as their worship book, their hymnal, their prayer book to aid in their time of worship in the temple. These, um, these Psalms, all 150 of them, are divided into five sections. And the five sections mirror the five books of the law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Maxie Dunham, who wrote a book entitled Living the Psalms, has written that we are not studying the Psalms. He says we are allowing the Psalms to study us and to speak to us about the things of God. So this morning, let's don't read the Psalm and study it. Let's let it study us and speak to us about the things of God. Now this particular Psalm Psalm 36 is an interesting psalm because it contrasts the character of God later in the psalm, which is a God of love, a God of faithfulness. But it begins with looking at the character of a wicked and evil and sinful man who is willfully and intentionally slicing God out of his life. This man apparently has no conscience. He is intent on going in the direction in which he wants to go. So the psalm contrasts the wicked man with the great, deep, abiding love of God. So let's read the psalm together. Follow along with me in your Bibles. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Even on his bed he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. But then the psalm, this poem, this piece of, of literature that may well have been sung in the temple worship kind of transitions. And look how it transitions describing God. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice 
like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your love, your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, and not able to rise. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, recently <clears throat> I heard uh, a senior pastor of a congregation and that congregation's youth minister talk about a young man in their congregation that the church had been reaching out to and attempting to minister to. He was a 12-year-old little boy. And for some reason, this 12-year-old little boy was doubting the love of God. And so this pastor and this youth pastor had been talking to him and sharing with him the love of God and really doing it John 3.16 style, trying to help him understand that for God so loved the world, including him, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And through word and deed, this youth pastor and this pastor had been trying to pound this message into this 12-year-old young man's life. But the young man just had difficulty believing and could not absorb that God could love him. He just couldn't absorb the fact that God could forgive him of his sin, that God could transform him into the character of Jesus. Apparently, part of this young man's difficulty in absorbing this message was his own family history. I don't fully know the, the family background out of which this young man was, is growing up in, but, but apparently there were things going on in the life of the family. The family had quite a history of ignoring and bypassing God, of uh, behavior that did not reflect the character and spirit of Christ. And at one point, one day, this, this young man, this 12-year-old boy, told his youth pastor, he said, you know, I'm just wired to go bad because of my family. I'm just wired to go bad because of my family. Maybe I shouldn't consider Jesus. Doesn't that statement just break your heart? that a 12-year-old had already reached the point that he had decided that he was wired to go bad from the get-go, and maybe because of that, he shouldn't consider Jesus. Now, you know Psalm 36, especially verses 5 through 7, speak to this 12-year-old. 
It speaks to remind all of us that your love, O Lord, reaches to the highest heavens. Your faithfulness, O God, to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains and your justice like the great deep. How priceless is your unfailing love. You know, not even a bad family history can separate you from the love and the forgiveness of God if you just open up your heart to it. But you know the fact is, like this 12-year-old boy, there are people of all ages and all family backgrounds and all life situations who have already decided that they are totally unacceptable to God. They've already decided that because of what they've said or what they've done or who they have become, that God possibly couldn't love them and God couldn't possibly forgive them. In their minds, they are drowning in a sea of shame. They're drowning in a sea of embarrassment. They're drowning in a sea of guilt. And many of them feel like they're being squashed under the angry and judging hand of God. So the reality is, they're fairly convinced that while God's love and forgiveness reaches to the highest heavens and the highest sky and to the tallest mountain and to the deepest of deep, it can't reach them. The love and the forgiveness of God just doesn't speak to their situation. Now, undoubtedly, the first few verses of Psalm 36 describes, though, a different kind of person than this 12-year-old young man. Because, you know, we all find ourselves along the continuum. Some of us are in love with Jesus. And we've given our life to Him, and we know His love and His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy have all been wrapped around our lives. And some of us are kind of in the middle, like this 12-year-old boy. We're just not sure if who we've become, what we've said, what we've done, if God can still love me and forgive me. There's a question mark. There's doubt. But there's some of us on the far end of the spectrum who have moved far away from God, and that's the kind of person that the first few verses of Psalm 36 is talking about. You see, that 12-year-old boy, he still haven't clo- he hasn't closed the door yet on Jesus. He's still got some openness to Jesus. But verses 1 through 4 paints the picture of an individual who has willfully cut God out of his life. The text says that this man has no fear of God. He's so prideful he doesn't even detect or hate his own sin. The text says that all wisdom and goodness has ceased. The text says that he has committed himself, this is a direct quote, to a sinful course, and that he does not reject what is wrong. Now, you know the fact is there are a lot of people in this world who have engaged in sinful behavior to the point that they have moved far from God. And they've moved to the point where they have set themselves up as the expert in their lives. Now, you know what we call that biblically and theologically? We call that idolatry. If you're committing idolatry, it means that you think you're the expert on your life and not God. You've set yourself, your wisdom, your judgment, your thinking, your behavior, which you've rationalized, you've set it up far above God, and that's the sin of idolatry. And as I heard the old revival preacher years ago say, it doesn't matter however you spell it, 
S-I-N or N-I-S. I is in the middle. And that's right, isn't it? S-I-N or N-I-S, I is in the middle. And that's the core of what sin is about. We place ourselves in the middle. You know, sin is any thinking, attitudinal, verbal, or behavioral activity that invites you to be less than who God made you to be and created you to be. And whenever you are less than who God has created you to be, it creates distance between you and God and not intimacy. And that distance has to be bridged. And that's what we preach and we teach in the Christian church is that Jesus came to bridge the gap between you and God when sin entered the picture. And as Michael McKnight told the children so beautifully, God loves you so much. He loves you that wide. Because that's about how wide Jesus' hands were nailed to that cross. That cross is meant to bridge the gap between you and God because you've put I in the middle. You've committed the sin of idolatry. You have said you're the expert in your life and not God. And so that's why Jesus came. God's intention was to bridge the gap between you and God in the distance that you and I willfully have created in shutting God out. But let me tell you what the psalmist describes here in these first few verses. He describes an individual who has time after time after time has repetitively moved further and further and further away from God. He has moved so far away from God that his conscience is no longer pricked by the working of God's Holy Spirit. Now, you know, one of the things that God risked in creation was giving you and me free will. We get to make choices. We get to make decisions. And in the context of that creation, God gave us the choice. He doesn't want us to make this choice, but he gives us the choice to move further and further and further away from him. And this man in the psalm has moved so far away from God that he can't see his sin. And therefore, God can't forgive that sin. And therefore, he continues to be distanced from God. Now, you know, if you read Matthew chapter 12, or Mark chapter 3, or Luke chapter 11, you will read about Jesus talking about what's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In Jewish and Christian thinking, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to show us the truth about ourselves. And one of the truths about ourselves is our sin. And the Holy Spirit causes us to repent. Causes to, to repent means to change your mind. You're going in one direction and you decide to change your mind and go in the other direction. But there are some people who so harden their hearts to God and to what His Holy Spirit is trying to do in their lives is that they can't see their sin any longer. They don't hate their sin. They're not aware of it. And that's what we have here in Psalm 36 at the very beginning. A person who has probably committed the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you're sitting there wondering, have I committed the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You can probably relax. Because if you've even asked the question, have I done it, it probably means you haven't. It's only those people whose conscience are so seared and so, so deadened to God that they never ask the question. 
well, what's God's intent for us? Because we've got different places along the continuum. We've got the person who is so closed and hardened their heart to God that they no longer see their sin. And then we've got some people in the middle, like that 12-year-old boy, who thinks that maybe God just can't love me. Maybe he can't forgive me of my sin. What's God's real intent for us? Well, God's real intent is for us to enter a love relationship with him where we pledge our love and our faithfulness to him even as he, as he has pledged his love and his faithful to, to, faithfulness to us through the sending of his son Jesus. The fact is, God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. And if that phrase sounds familiar, it means that either in the past or currently you're taking the class experiencing God. Because the second reality of experiencing God is God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and that is personal. And if you go to the text that we read out of, Psalm, out of Isaiah 62, it paints the picture of a God who comes after us in a love relationship to the point that God wants to marry you and me. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? God wants to enter into a marital relationship with you and me. He wants you and me to fall in love with Him as much as He has fallen in love with us. L listen one more time to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 62. The prophet says, and this is speaking on behalf of God, but you will be called Hezebah, which in Hebrew means my delight is in you. And your land will be called Beulah. Beulah in Hebrew means married. For the Lord will take delight in you. And your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden. Now this is God. This is God that's speaking. So will your builder, meaning himself, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isn't that an interesting picture? God wants to enter a marriage relationship with us. Now, you know, I, I do a lot of weddings and have done a lot of weddings over the years. Uh, unfortunately, it seems like in the last few years, I've been doing more funerals in the life of our congregation than weddings. I bet you we have probably had about 60 to 70 of our members that have died in the last 10 years. You kind of lose track of time. But the real celebration that we all prefer is not funerals. We, we'd much rather be a part of a wedding service, hadn't we? You, you know one of the most sacred and holy moments of the wedding service, ceremony, time of worship is for me? It is when I give the bride and the groom their vows. And I don't know who in the world came up with those vows but they're some of the most beautiful words that's ever been created and written and therefore consequently said. I always ask the husband to be and the wife to be. Of course, I'm usually standing about right here and they're right here in front of me. Of course, the pulpit's down for a wedding and they're standing and I always ask them to turn and face each other. 
hold hands. Because I don't want them to look at me and take their wedding vows. I want them to look at each other. And, and, and I begin by saying, with the husband, and then the wife, second, but I start with the husband, I and your full name take you, and then I repeat the full name of the bride. I in your full name take you, the name of the bride, to be my wedded husband or, or wife, depending on which uh, spouse I'm about to do. And then, the, the, then the, the, the wedding vows go like this. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and your faithful husband or wife. It, it, you know, that, that just reflects the psalm. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heaven. Your faithfulness to the skies. To be your loving and faithful husband and wife. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful wife. And then here are the conditions. In plenty and in want. In joy and in sorrow. In sickness or in health. And how long is this covenant going to last? For as long as we both shall live. Aren't those beautiful words? You know, God feels the same way about you as what I hope a husband and a wife feel about each other as they're standing there looking each other in the eyeball, holding hands and giving those vows and sharing those vows with each other. God looks at you and He calls your name. And He says, I take you to be my spouse. And I do promise and covenant before the entire universe. I promise to be your loving and faithful spouse. I promise to do it in plenty and in want in your life. I promise to do it in joy and in sorrow. I promise to do it in your sickness or in your health. And I do promise and covenant to do it for as long as you live and even after your death because nothing can separate you from my love. God promises and He covenants. It's not a contract, folks. Contracts are made to be, bro made to be broken sometimes. And in fact, they are broken. Covenants are eternal and they last forever. And that's what your God does for you and that's what your God does for me. He promises to be our spiritual spouse. And as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's the promise that God makes to you this morning. I'm wondering, can you make the same promise back to Him? Have you made the same promise back to Him to covenant with Him to be His faithful and loving spouse in all the conditions of life. You know, this morning we're going to sing a hymn. And it is, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. It's hymn number 352 in your hymnal. And I just wonder today where you are on that continuum. Have you hardened your heart to the love of God? 
Do you have some question marks in the middle and you're saying, I'm not sure if God can love me or forgive me? Or are you at that side of the continuum where you say, I have promised and I have covenanted with God to love Him and to be faithful to Him even as He is loving and faithful to me? There could be some folks here this morning who've never made that first-time decision to follow Jesus. Or maybe you made the decision a lot of years ago, but the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart and is moving in your life and is inviting you to renew that love promise back to Him today. Maybe you've been through the Oakmont 101 class. You're ready, having been through that membership class, to come and be a part of the Oakmont Church family. So I'm going to be standing at the front and waiting for you. You may want to go to the, to the prayer stations to leave a prayer request, to pray with one of our ministers about some concern or need in your life or someone you know. So as we worship together, you feel the freedom to respond and to make those kind of commitments and promises to God as we stand together and sing our hymn. Let's stand.
friends, good morning and welcome again to worship. It's good to, to see you here today to be able to share in this time of being with each other and being in God's presence. I hope you'll take in just a moment the Burgundy Fellowship pads and move them up and down your pew. One of the things that we like to do at Oakmont is to deepen community and relationships. That's one of our core values as a congregation. And one of the ways we can do that is just simply speaking to each other, and especially those who may be first-time or returning guests uh, to our time of worship here at Oakmont. We also want to thank uh, those who are worshiping by way of Cable Channel 7 or live streaming this morning. And so it's just good to be His people together. We're going to continue in our worship as we receive God's tithes and His offerings. And so I want to ask our ushers to come now as we practice that good spiritual habit of being generous givers together today. 